The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. It's very humbling to be standing in this place today. A tuba player, a tuba player from New Holland, Pennsylvania, professor of practical theology. This is God's grace for sure. And to him I give all praise and honor and glory. And I'm grateful to the faculty and the trustees for their vote of confidence. I pray that I will be worthy of it. I've learned so much from my colleagues on the faculty. I'm in awe of your gifts. I'm grateful to the students who are here today because I know there are a lot of other things you could be doing. For all who are participating in the service today, I've learned something from each of you, and it means so much to me to to have you participate. And Paul and Ken as well, uh, thank you so much. There are others here today who have been mentioned already briefly uh, to whom I owe great gratitude. It is a joy to be serving in the ministry at Crossroads Community Church and uh, my colleague in ministry there, Pastor Dave, is here and some members of the congregation. And uh, I tell people here that I'm only useful at the seminary because of what I've learned in partnership and ministry with you through nearly 20 years. I haven't published much yet, but together we've been writing a story of fruitful ministry from which many people have learned and I hope will continue to learn. I'm also very grateful that my mother and my brothers are here today. I have learned much from you, and particularly a love for the church. We sang a mighty fortress in honor of my Lutheran heritage this morning. And Barb, uh, you are the most selfless person I know. Thank you for your unconditional love. And my children, uh, what, what can I say? This was worth all the effort to me just to be all together for another day. I'm also great, grateful that my brothers can be here, too, and uh, their wives. I'm particularly humbled this morning because of those who have filled this role of professor of practical theology here at Westminster in the past. When Westminster began in 1929, R.B. Kuyper taught the practical theology courses. He was listed in the academic catalog as professor of systematic theology. But then he left Westminster for a very short time to be the president of Calvin College, Then he came back to Westminster, and when he was re-entered in the academic catalog of 1933-34, he was listed as professor of practical theology. Well, it wasn't for another 30 years that another professor of practical theology would be inaugurated, and that was Edmund Clowney. And then it was another 20 years after that, uh, Harvey Kahn, and other names that you also know since then, uh, Fuller, Ortiz, Bettler, and Welch. And my special thanks to Manny today, another pastor who saw the potential for usefulness in me. Uh, And this has helped me, this pastor, function as professor. Not always the easiest gap to span. Ten years ago, Manny was the last person to be inaugurated as a full professor 
of Practical Theology. And so I just took a look at his title, and the title of his address was Seminary, A Place for Missional Preparedness. And while there are many things going through my mind, I think that spurred me to address my concern today. Seminary, a place to prepare pastors, question mark. First of all, any of you who know me at all know that my concern is that a healthy and strong church has to be led by elders and pastors who are shepherds of God's flock. My doctoral work focused on developing that concept, and I'm always on the lookout for resources that will help us grow in our understanding of it. I'm particularly grateful for the recent publication by Tim Laniak entitled Shepherds After My Own Heart, which gives the rich biblical theology of the shepherding metaphor. I've added this title to my growing bibliography of books I wish I had written. But in terms of works that explore the shepherding metaphor, you have to be very, very careful. So for example, a movie is coming out soon called The Good Shepherd. Don't be deceived. It's about the CIA. I don't know, maybe there is a connection, I'm not sure. But if the key to the advance of the kingdom of our Lord is through the church, then the proper preparation of under-shepherds to lead the flock is crucial. As we heard earlier in Matthew 9, as Jesus walked about the countryside, he felt compassion for the people because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. It was then that he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. As William still reminds us, the pastor, by definition, is a shepherd, the under-shepherd of the flock of God. His primary task is to feed the flock by leading them to green pastures. He also has to care for them when they're sick or hurt and seek them when they go astray. The importance of the pastor depends on the value of the sheep. What does the church need? What has the church always needed? What will the church always continue to need? Shepherds, pastors who are shepherds. But how will they be trained? How should they be prepared? And so you notice the question mark at the end of my topic this morning. Manny's title was probably more confidently framed. There wasn't a question mark about seminary, a place for missional preparedness. But for my subject matter, there does seem to be many questions about it, whether the seminary is a place to prepare pastors. Many have read the words of John Frame. It seems to me that most seminary graduates are not spiritually ready for the challenges of the ministry. Seminaries not only frequently refuse to do the work of the church, they also tend to undo it. In an article published in the Christian Century, Edward Farley bemoans the fact that despite years of internal self-analysis and external pressure from the church and accreditors, little has changed in addressing the ineffectiveness of seminaries in training pastors. So, should there be a question mark or not? Is seminary an effective place to prepare pastors? As the theological seminary, as an institution, is a relative latecomer in terms of models of ministerial training in America, it was hoped to be a hybrid of two earlier models. I'd first of all, here's how I'd like to proceed this morning. And don't worry, not only do I have the clock on the back, but for Mike, this is also right here. I guess they heard my watch was broken. <laughs> first of all, I'd like to take a look at the two earlier models and see how the seminary was thought to be a hybrid of those two. But then to, to answer the question in the modern institution that we have, and probably some specific application to Westminster as well, the institution that we all love. First of all, I'm going to be simplistic. At the risk of being simplistic, I want to address those two dominant models in trading pastors in the United States. 
First of all, the academic model or the academy approach. The first generations of, generation of pastors in America were trained in Europe. But as the colonies grew and the number of people grew, it became important to establish a place where pastors could be trained here. The first colleges in America were created for the purpose of providing pastors. For example, in an early brochure for Harvard, published in 1643, it justified the college's existence with these words, to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches. And though they followed the medieval academic template of the European universities, it was clear that the preparation for pastoral ministry was the mission. According to Quincy's History of Harvard, he writes, the exercises of the students had the aspect of a theological rather than a literary institution. They were practiced twice a day in reading the scriptures, giving an account of their proficiency and experience in practical and spiritual truths, accompanied by theoretical observations on the language and logic of the sacred writings. They were carefully to attend to God's ordinances and be examined on their profiting, commonplacing the sermons and repeating them publicly in the hall. There's a lot of practical theology going on there. But he continues to note that subjects for study included logic, physics, etymology, syntax, ethics, politics, geometry, composition, and Hebrew. Greek was a requirement for admission. Some things don't change. But more than half of Harvard's graduates in its first century of existence became pastors, more than half. But even those graduates didn't go into pastoral work immediately. They stayed at the college for the purpose of advanced study in theology. In his classic work on training the Protestant ministry in the United States, William Shoemaker writes, whatever may have been the number of exceptions it was in the earlier period, the custom among the Congregationalists of America for the graduate intending to study for the ministry to return to Harvard for two years, more or less, of study in divinity, though it wasn't a formal program. The practice was common at Yale as well. After graduating from Yale in 1720, Jonathan Edwards stayed on for two years at the college to pursue theological studies. But inasmuch as the scope of the early college training began to broaden, they actually began to appoint professors of divinity. At Harvard in 721, 1721 and Yale in 1756, the first professorships of divinity were established. At Yale, this was brought about largely by the impact of the Great Awakening. And so the need was seen for a faculty member to devote his efforts completely to the instruction of students preparing for ministry. But as time went on, as the, uh, the focus of the colleges began to broaden, then there was a new model that developed, the apprenticeship model. Toward the middle of the 18th century, this practice began, first among the Congregationalists and then among the Presbyterians. Experienced pastors would take candidates for the ministry, not only under their care, but sometimes into their homes. One of the first and most notable of these was a man named Joseph Bellamy of Bethlehem, Connecticut, of whom it was written in Sprague's Annals of the American Pulpit. He was described in this way. From the time that Mr. Bellamy resumed the stated charge of his flock at the close of his labors as an itinerant, he commenced assisting young men in their theological studies preparatory for the ministry. And in this department of labor, he soon became highly distinguished. Many of the most eminent ministers of New England of the last generation were trained in a great measure under his instruction. When they had gone through the prescribed course of reading, he required them to write dissertations on several subjects which had occupied their attention, and afterwards, sermons on those points of doctrine which he deemed most important. And finally, sermons on such experimental and practical topics as they might choose to select. He was particularly earnest 
in inculcating the importance of a high tone of spiritual feeling as an element of ministerial character and success. His students are said to have formed the highest regard for his talents and character, and in some instances to have regarded him with veneration bordering, bordering well nigh unto idolatry. Yikes. Bellamy trained 100 candidates for ministry in this way from 1742 to 1790. There were many other pastors who did the same. But it should be noted that most of this training was graduate training. But the pattern also existed among the Presbyterians. Among the most notable of the pastors who gave himself to equip young men for the ministry was William Tennant, who founded what became known as the Log College, not far from here in the Chamonix, Bucks County. The difference here was that men came here to prepare for the ministry who did not attend one of the colleges. Tennant sought to provide the basic liberal arts education as well as training for the pastoral ministry. And this Log College became the model for many other such academies, if you will led by pastors. Samuel Blair, a graduate of Tennant's Long College, established another such institution at Fags Manor in Chester County. And from this school came Samuel Davies, later president of Princeton. Samuel Finley established another Long College at Nottingham, Pennsylvania, the most famous of whose graduates was Dr. Benjamin Rush, who as an influential Presbyterian layman was active in establishing Dickinson College. Another such school uh, was at Peckway in Lancaster County, from which came John McMillan who in turn established a log college in southwestern Pennsylvania, became a very common model for training pastors. Of interest to some here this morning is the fact that an academy in western Pennsylvania founded by five teaching elders and 14 uh, ruling elders eventually became incorporated as the University of Pittsburgh. I mentioned Dickinson and University of Pittsburgh because two of my kids happen to have gone to those places. But of the 40 permanent colleges established in the United States between 1780 and 1829, 29 of them were established by the church, largely to help uh, found and prepare ministers. But the, the common mode of preparing ministers that followed that approach in the academic model was the apprenticeship model. And it was about this time, as the, the colleges began to lose their focus on training pastors, and the work seemed to be dispersed among various ministers that theological seminaries were founded. This was also uh, brought about through a number of things that came together otherwise. The colleges began to experience a decline in the number of students entering to prepare for the pastoral ministry. For example, of the 540 students who graduated from Yale between 1792 and 1805, only 109 were preparing for the ministry while 182 became lawyers. This trend continued. And this wasn't the only problem. After the American War of Independence, like the way I said that, Carl? American War of Independence, the spiritual climate on the college campuses declined dramatically. Lyman Beecher described the conditions at Yale in the 1790s with these words. The college was in a most ungodly state. The church was almost extinct. Most of the students were skeptical, and rowdies were plenty. Things weren't any better at Dartmouth. Sorry, Al where only one member of the class of 1799 was known as a professing Christian. And so it was in this environment the seminaries were founded, the first one by the Dutch Reformed Church in 1784, moving eventually to New Brunswick. Presbyterians and Congregationalists weren't far behind. The first Congregationalist seminary was established at Andover in 1807. Princeton was established by the Presbyterians in 1812. And in 1815, Harvard expanded its professorship of divinity to a divinity school. 
It was the increase in demand together with diminishing supply that led to the establishment of the seminaries. But not all ecclesiastical bodies in the United States held theological education in such high regard. As Professor Davis used to say, while the Presbyterians were establishing colleges, academies, and institutes, the Baptists and Methodists were planting churches. In the beginning of the 19th century, the Methodists and Baptists were skeptical about the advantages of seminary education. The circuit-riding Methodist preacher Peter Cartwright compared the theologically educated preachers that he knew to the pale lettuce growing under the shade of a peach tree, <laughs> or to a gosling that has got the waddles waiting in the dew. However, eventually they changed their views, as first they saw the impact of Presbyterian and Congregational graduates, and then second consideration was this, and I quote from Sweet's uh, History of uh, Seminaries in Early America. They were impacted by the influence that was exerted by educated and wealthy laymen who began to demand ministers of whom they need not feel ashamed. Trained ministers, they said, that's the Baptists and Methodists, were needed to attract the cultured people of the cities and scholars were needed to refute the attacks upon their theology. In any case, the burden shifted uh, to the theological seminaries for training pastors or divinity schools attached to the existence of the universities. But by the middle of the 19th century, things began to change again. Doubts were being raised as to the effectiveness of the new theological seminary model. The name of Gardner Spring is known to many of you who have done study in the area of the history of theological education. He was himself a Yale graduate in the class of 1805 and had a productive ministry in New York City for the next 60 years. He's a, he was an early board member of Princeton Seminary and served on the board for 34 years. And in 1848, he wrote a book entitled The Power of the Pulpit. And in that book, he offers some criticisms of the new model that we know as a theological seminary, particularly in comparison with the old way of being trained under the tutelage of an experienced pastor. Of the change in approach, he notes, it was not unnatural that in contemplating the change from this system of education to that which is now pursued by the theological seminaries, a doubt should have suggested itself to the minds of our fathers, whether on the whole it would be a change for the better. And he adds the question, may there not be some latent defect in the modern system of educating young men for the gospel ministry? Then he goes on to quote Princeton faculty member Samuel Miller, who noted, how difficult it is, even in this day of theological seminaries, to supply an important vacant congregation with a pastor in whom the union of eminent learning, talents, and piety is considered indispensable. I think it's the sentiments of Dr. Miller that truly identify the challenge, the union of eminent learning, talents, and piety. Reverend Spring expresses concern this way, the age in which we live is one in which the love of learning rather than the love of Christ is easily substituted as the great stimulus to ministerial effort, and in which it were not surprising if men are found occupying the sacred office whose greenest laurels are gathered from the tree of knowledge rather than from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He adds, men of letters, men of research, men of taste, and accomplished scholars who, like the rest of mankind, have the remnants of all that is unhallowed in the pride and ambition of the human heart, may look upon it as a miracle of mercy if they make not shipwreck of a good conscience in the great work of the gospel ministry. Pretty cynical, I think you'll agree. But those sentiments have been echoed throughout the decades. Uh, again, looking to John Frame as he writes, the academic machinery is simply incapable of measuring the things that really matter 
obedience to God's word, perseverance in prayer, self-control, ability to rule without pride, spiritual power of preaching and the conversion of people and the edification of the church. A person does not become qualified for the ministry simply by writing a number of good papers and memorizing enough material to pass all the exams. To give the impression that one does, as the theological academies do, is to encourage a false pride in learning, a knowledge that puffs up, a Gnosticism that in the past has led the church far from the truth of God's word. But neither spring nor frame recommend dispensing with the importance of the academic model, of dispensing with the need for a learned ministry. But the seminary, supposing to be a hybrid established by the church to bring together the most important and valuable traits of academic learning and the apprenticeship model, still there are concerns. It seems as though the pendulum, pendulum swings back and forth from the concern for eminent learning of the academy to the broader concern for pastoral preparedness, meaning talents, competency, and piety seen in the apprenticeship model. But does it have to be either or? Is the seminary a place? Can it be a place? Is it a place to prepare pastors? Well, I think you know what my answer is going to be, or I will need a new job. <laughs> the answer is yes, but it is a qualified yes. And I think as we look to those two particular models, we look at the strengths of them, I think we will see how a seminary can be and should be effective in training pastors. First of all, we need to renew our commitment to the mission to prepare pastors. In the brief survey of pastoral training that we looked at earlier, when the colleges were focused on preparing pastors, they were effective. But when their mission was bifurcated and lost in a sea of other academic pursuits, they became increasingly ineffective. This was further aggravated unintentionally by the appointment of professors of divinity to whom it was looked as their job to prepare the pastors. The mission of the institutions as a whole had changed. The apprenticeship model, on the other hand, the purpose was right in front of them all the time as students were being taught by pastors in the context of a congregation. But as the seminary movement came into full bloom, there has always been a pressure to become a graduate school of theology rather than a seminary for pastors. As Leith Anderson has written in his book, A Church for the 21st Century, traditional seminary education is designed to train research theologians who are to become parish practitioners. Probably they are adequately equipped for neither. What about the mission to prepare pastors here at Westminster? The heart of the mission of Westminster Seminary from its very founding was to prepare men for gospel ministry. While much that we read surrounding and understand about the founding of the seminary focused on the need for a new Presbyterian seminary in light of the liberalism at Princeton, we know that the reason for that was so that orthodox pastors could be trained. In a brief news item in the August 3rd, 1929 issue of the Sunday School Times, now this is research, friends, this is research. August 3rd, 1929 issue of the Sunday School Times, there was an announcement about the establishment of a new seminary and it quoted Machen, who said that in the light of what was happening at Princeton, we must have at least one sound source of ministerial supply. In the same publication later that month, O.T. Alice gave the outline of the course of study at the new seminary. And he said, speaking of Westminster as a place for the study of the Bible as the sword of the spirit, he said, a sword is dangerous in the hands of the unskillful, and the sword of the Spirit has a sharp edge. If the minister is to wield that sword effectively, he needs careful instruction. Notice that his focus was on preparing the minister. 
And in Machen's well-known address at the opening of the seminary, he said, we believe that God has been pleased to reveal himself to man and to redeem man once for all from the guilt and power of sin. The record of that revelation and redemption is contained in the Holy Scriptures, and it's with the Holy Scriptures and not merely with the human phenomenon of religion that candidates from the, for the ministry should learn to deal. One last, one last citation from those days. In a booklet entitled Preliminary Announcements, printed as the seminary began in 1929, there was this note that you'll find interesting, I think. Quote, there is no charge for tuition or room rent. <laughs> Sorry. Some things have changed. But in describing the curriculum, it humbly states, I say humbly states, the course of study prescribed for the certificate at the seminary, and that's what they gave at that time, is designed to provide a complete and symmetrical training for the gospel ministry. A complete and symmetrical training for the gospel ministry. The point was clear. And it continues to be reemphasized here. A few years ago, the seminary adopted a new mission statement, and the first bullet point listed after the core values are enumerated is this, forming men for the ordained gospel ministry as pastors, teachers, evangelists, missionaries, and other tasks specified by the church. As the statement continues, it reminds us that this isn't the only thing that we do, but it's the heart of what we do and always has been since the seminary opened its doors. But one of the things that perplexes me is what I've heard said several times. If you want to be a scholar, go to Westminster. If you want to be a pastor, go somewhere else. But I have to admit that somewhat perplexes me given the catalog of effective pastors who have graduated from here, including 518 alumni serving in the PCA and 278 who have gone into the, into the OPC. Many have been looked to as leaders in their denominations. Well, maybe it's a weakness in the area of practical theology. This is also perplexing to me in as much as three of the most significant and lasting contributions to the contemporary church have come through practical theology faculty here at Westminster. I'm talking about the original Christ-centered preaching emphasis and the rich redemptive historical approach to preaching of Clowney and Craven, the biblical counseling revolution of Adams, Bettler, Pallison, and Welch, and the remarkable work of Kahn and Ortiz in urban missions. So what about this commitment to form pastors? God has blessed the work of the seminary so that it's had to broaden its mission. This has been reflected in the addition of new degree programs reflecting the academic excellence of this institution. They model and echo the value of our mission to serve as a center for Christian research and scholarship and communicate the fruits of our labors to the church and to the world. The MAR and PhD programs fit into this category and have been richly blessed in accomplishing this mission. It's important to say, therefore, that preparing pastors is not the only thing that we do, but when it comes to carrying on that commitment as an important way uh, to focus our mission, we should make it clear that our Master of Divinity program is the continuation of the Bachelor of Divinity that the ministerial students received in the old days, and that represents the mission of the founders of our seminary to prepare pastors. And I understand that there are other students in the MDiv program, but this is the program to which we should look and which we should unashamedly commit to the preparation of pastors. So we need to sharpen the mission. We need to sharpen the mission. But what does that look like? Well, if we're to sharpen the mission, secondly, we need to remember that our mission must include a holistic picture of ministerial formation. If we are committed to form pastors, that's a, a comprehensive holistic view that we have to have, that our goal is not merely to form a person. Our goal is not to form a professional, but a person. 
Our commitment must not be merely a transmission of information, but the transformation of character. Going back to what Spring said when he talked about the balance of eminent learning, talents, and piety. We must add to this that the eminent learning piece continues to be crucial in our times. Quoting Eddie Gibbs in Church Next, he says, there's a danger of a chasm being created between academic theology and training in ministry competencies. The challenges presented by both modernity and postmodernity require greater theologically informed discernment, not less. So I'm not suggesting that we dumb down what we do, not at all. Westminster's reputation for academic excellence should not be compromised. Our interest in academic excellence is not based on a concern, as we saw earlier, that we produce ministers of whom wealthy and educated laymen are not ashamed, but rather who will be diligent to present themselves to God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And the foundation that we, of that word of truth is a commitment to the authority of the scriptures, because where there is no authoritative scripture, there's no authoritative message. Well, there's no authoritative message. There's no authoritative messenger. There's no authoritative messenger. We have no mission whatsoever. So all this has to be grounded, all that we do, and the death has to be robust biblical orthodoxy. And the death knell to any institution is the loss of that. But if our mission is to prepare pastors, we have to constantly remind ourselves of the comprehensiveness of the task, that our goal is to form a person, not a professional. This was very strongly evidenced in the apprenticeship model. In Archibald Alexander's wonderful history of the Law College, he wrote of Gilbert Tennant's concern for his students, but above all other things, the purity of the ministry was his care. And therefore, at the hazard of the displeasure of many and in the face of reproach, he zealously urged every scriptural method by which carnal and earthly-minded men might be kept from entering it, men of piety and zeal as well as learning introduced. More recently, Robert Banks warns that the current model of theological education emphasizes knowing at the expense of doing and being, and that the professional school model now dominates, and this continues to ignore the being of the student to exalt professionalism over calling and vocation. Professor Kahn asked these questions. Is it not true that the Bible suggests relatively few criteria for the elder or for the pastor that relate to what one does, what, excuse me, what one knows? Is it not true that our examinations for ordination focus by and large on what information the candidate has gathered and can reproduce with a maximum of ease before his peers? Is there not almost a hidden presumption in most of us that if ministerial graduate has graduated from seminary X or Bible school Y, he must be qualified? How deeply is our concept of ordination dictated by the educational establishment? These are questions that both the seminary and the church need to address. Among Westminster's core values is to develop a learned ministry set in the lifestyle of humble and holy affection for Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel, our goal should be to see the power of the gospel fill the hearts and lives of our students so that as they seek to be shepherds, that they are following the good shepherd himself, seeking to be transformed by the very word that he seeks to proclaim. Dr. Ferguson reminds us, with these words, that preaching to the heart, then, is not merely a matter of technique or homiletic method or style. These things have their proper place and relevance, but the more fundamental, indeed, essential thing for the preacher is surely the fact that something has happened to his own heart. It's been laid bare before God by his word. He, in turn, lays it bare in his ministry before those to whom he ministers. And within that twofold personal context, the goal he has in view is so to lay bare the truth of the word of God that the hearts of those who hear are open vertically to God and horizontally to one another. 
On one of George Whitfield's many visits to Philadelphia, he visited the Log College and heard Gilbert Tennant preach. Of this experience, Whitfield said, he convinced me more and more that we can preach the gospel of Christ no further than we have experienced the power of it in our own hearts. How important is this? It's crucial. And so if we are to be effective in training pastors, it's yes if we embrace the mission. Second, yes, if we remember that we have to focus on the holistic picture of ministerial formation. Thirdly, if we reinforce our partnership with the church. Another imperative in the preparation of pastors is a vital partnership with the local church. As I mentioned earlier, a distinct advantage of the apprenticeship model was the contextualized training in the community of faith and the recognition of the importance of the engagement with the church in preparing pastors. As I like to say, it takes a flock to shape a shepherd. Now those first theological seminaries to which I referred earlier were also uh, designed and hoped to offer that connection with the church as they were established by churches. Because this relationship with the church is crucial to the formation of pastors. After all, the church is responsible to uh, ascertain the gifts and calling of individuals for ministry. Undoubtedly, it's for this reason that our accrediting body, the Association of Theological Schools, many years ago required that those with Master Divinity degree programs institute a requirement for supervised field education, what we know here at Westminster as mentored ministry. This required engagement with the practice of ministry in the church as a reminder that the desired outcome must include competency in the practice of ministry in the context of the church. And this is something that the founding faculty was always also concerned about, though they didn't have mentored ministry per se back then. From the first academic catalog under the uh, heading vacations, the summer vacation gives to students a suitable opportunity for engaging in preaching and other Christian work under the direction of pastors, presbyteries, or mission boards. Such work furnishes an important supplement to the training of the seminary, affording experience and familiarity with the active duties of the ministry, which will be invaluable as part of the preparation for the sacred office. So we continue our partnership with the church through our mentored ministry program here, but we need to continue to think creatively about how we can reinforce our strategic relationship. We do encourage our students to be active in the local church. It's been an important priority of the seminary. Also an important priority has been to see its faculty members involved in the church. Our current faculty manual requires that 75% of voting faculty members be ordained teaching and ruling elders, with the majority being ordained ministers. And certainly all faculty members should be active contributing members of local congregations. This strengthens the relationship between the seminary and the local church. But I like the way Donald Mester put it in his book, Calling Church and Seminary into the 21st Century. He reminds the reader of the old academic adage, publish or perish. And he suggests that what it must be in the 21st century is publish and parish. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So we must continually be pursuing our academic concerns, but also continuing to work that out in the context of the local church. We need to also continue and encourage pastors continue encouraging pastors to come on campus and meet with students to take advantage of opportunities to welcome them, to share their wisdom with our students in class and outside of class. So seminary, a place to prepare pastors. Yes, if we renew our commitment to the mission. Yes, if we remember that we're focusing on holistic ministerial formation. Yes, if we reinforce our partnership with the church. Finally, finally, 
we need to review our approach in the classroom. If the MDiv program is designed to prepare pastors, it must have an impact on our pedagogical approach. This is not just the PT faculty, but everyone who teaches a required course in the MDiv program. We're eager to say that we give students the tools for a lifetime of ministry. That's admirable, but it's not merely enough to give someone a tool. Take me, for example. Those of you who know me well know that's not just enough to give me a tool. I don't know how to use tools. You have to show me how to use tools, and even if you show me, it's very risky. <laughs> Remember what O.T. Alice said. He said, a sword is dangerous in the hands of the unskillful, and the sword of the spirit has a sharp edge. If the minister is to wield that sword effectively, he needs careful instruction. And again, Eddie Gibbs writes, the issue is not whether theology per se is important, but what kind of theology. It must be theological training that provides the skills to apply the biblical text to contemporary situations. And Richard Moo, as he writes on faculty as scholars and teachers, says, given the centrality of ministerial formation and the work of the seminary, it's fair to say that seminary scholarship and teaching must have a ministry-related focus. Granted, he casts the net of ministry very broadly, but his concern is that there be a certain kind of intentionality of focus. Again, the apprenticeship model has had the advantage there, as well as in the fact that the students were being taught in an environment that was more easily conducive to application and contextualization. But as faculty members, we must all continually ask ourselves, how is the way that I teach my subject matter preparing students for ministry? It's been suggested that the practical theology department exists to address the concern for how the material taught in other classes applies to life and ministry. I've actually heard that has been said. I would never want that responsibility. And you don't want me to have that responsibility, my colleagues. There should be no such thing as unapplied theology. Actually, that's why I don't like the expression practical theology, because it implies that the rest is impractical. Harvey Kahn, in his 1983 inaugural lecture, recounted John Frame's definition of theology as simply the application of Scripture to all areas of human life. We do not know what the Scriptures say until we know how it relates to our world. And it's all the more important for us to strive to make these connections, given that we live in a much more complicated world than did the founders of Westminster. The challenges of the disintegrating geographical barriers of the increasingly flat world of globalization are only matched by the deteriorating moral and authoritative boundaries of postmodernism. Failing to assist our students to make these connections is to present a different kind of brute facts, or worse, brute theology, not truth disconnected from God, but God's truth disconnected from God's world. All of us in each of our disciplines must strive to answer the so what question. And we should also be thinking about this in terms not only of our individual instruction, but how we can work together as faculty. The name of the article I quoted earlier from uh, by Edward Farley, the name of the article is Why Seminaries Don't Change, a Reflection on Faculty Specialization. And he suggests that one of the problems is that we're so focused on our particular discipline that uh, we're missing the opportunity uh, otherwise to broaden and to embrace the whole mission. What are we to do with this? Well, of course, it's important for us to work in our areas of specialization. But in seminary, we have to remind ourselves and one another that we're working together toward a common goal. Ah, it's back to the mission again. Are there practical ways that our, partner, our partnership as faculty members around the mission can be reinforced that we are more than loosely associated specialists who produce a puzzle piece of scholarship and hope that somehow all the pieces of the puzzle will fit together into something that resembles a pastor? An important development here in recent years has been the collaboration of departments of practical theology and biblical studies in developing preaching courses. These have brought faculty from different departments together around the mission of shaping 
preachers and pastors. Perhaps it would be good to think creatively of other collaborations between departments to help our students make important connections and applications. And as we talk about the role of faculty, not only what we do in the classroom is important, but we have to remember that who we are is important. We serve as models of those whom we teach. This is emphasized in the earlier concluding words of one of the core values of the seminary to which I referred. Alerted ministry set in the lifestyle of humble and holy affection for Jesus Christ is essential in today's church and world and must be modeled by the board, administration, faculty, and students. If our goal is merely the transmission of information rather than the transformation of character, perhaps we could squeak by with less, but this is not the case. We must pray that through the power of the Spirit, we will be models of love for God and for one another. Why is this so important? According to a study by the Duke Divinity School, funded by the Lilly Foundation, and published in a book entitled Pastors in Transition, Why Clergy Leave the Ministry, one of the most common reasons that Protestant pastors leave the parish ministry is experience of troublesome conflicts. A particular interest and alarm is this finding. When comparing the five denominations in our study, we found Presbyterian pastors had higher rates of conflict with their congregations. And of the seven main reasons for leaving, this type of conflict was number one among frequency among Presbyterians. Now, the researchers couldn't tell us exactly why that's the case. They had no definitive answers why that was a particular problem among Presbyterians. But if we went back and adopted Frame's model of theological education as a, th as a community of Christians in which teachers, ministerial candidates, and their families live together, eat together, and work together, would our students be taking a model of healthy relationships with them into ministry or something less? There's certainly something to what Robert Banks says when he says, our effectiveness as teachers flows ultimately from who we are and how we relate as much as by what we do. Unless animated by and visibly expressing the faith, love, and hope that make our efforts effective, we do not achieve much in the classroom that endures. Is a seminary a place to prepare pastors? I say yes, if we focus the mission. Yes, if we understand that we're developing a holistic ministerial formation model. Yes, if we are seeking to reinforce our partnership with the church. And yes, if we continue to review our approach in the classroom as professors, not only by what we teach, but by how we live. The word seminary is from a Middle English word, seedbed, an environment in which something is nurtured. Our goal here is to nurture shepherds, to nurture pastors, to nurture pastors. But ultimately, we look to the one, the good shepherd himself, Jesus Christ, who calls, equips, and blesses those whom he calls. And then, on that day, our prayer should be that our graduates will hear the words, that our graduates will understand that when the chief shepherd appears, they'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Thank you very much.